This right here is the Twib Alert. You are now listening to Twib FM. Real talk, real awesome. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally, I'm finally me. Finally, I'm finally free. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Black Girl Nerds Podcast. My name is Jamie. I am your host. Tonight, we have an incredibly exciting show ahead of us. The producers of Extant are here. We have Greg Walker and Mickey Fisher to talk to us about our favorite new CBS series um, that is all things related to science and geekiness and all of the questions that you may have about what's happening with Extant and maybe what's going to be happening in season two, this is your opportunity to to listen in, ask questions, leave comments. You know how to do it. You can use the hashtag BGM podcast that puts you into the feed, allows you to tweet with other users that are listening in live. Also, if you go to twib.fm forward slash live, there's a twib chat room. You can also chat with other twib users and The lines are currently open, so if you want to call us and ask questions, our phone number is 718-404-9320. My co-host tonight is the wonderful Sharif Jackson, who is the host of Operation Cubicle. I'll introduce him in a moment and have him introduce himself to you guys. Um, But before we get to tossing the virtual mic over to our co-host and getting to our guests, I just want to make a couple of announcements. So we were on hiatus last week, as you know and had a really great time over the last couple of weeks. Last Saturday, we did a live show at New York Super Week, went really well, had a lot of you guys come out to support us. So I just wanna say thank you to um, everybody in the New York City metro area that came out to see us at New York Super Week. It was a very daunting experience for me, I have to say, doing a live podcast in front of an audience, but it was a lot of fun. And many of you that uh, were there, actually, we kind of went and hung out and had some pizza after the show. So it was great to connect with all of you guys um, in real life that I tweet with and converse with all the time through the podcast and other forms of social media. So thank you so much for supporting us there. And also thank you to the wonderful women over at Geek Girl Con. I was there last weekend, which is why we were on hiatus. Had a wonderful time being on a couple of panels, did a panel about comic books, did another panel about online feminism. So thank you so much to the women at Geek Girl Con for inviting Black Girl Nerds to speak um, and being so brave to have me speak on your panel. Thank you very much for that. (laughs) Um, So yeah, let me go ahead and toss that virtual mic over. I want us to get started right away into this great show. Uh, Sharif Jackson is with me. Sharif, introduce yourself. Tell us uh, where you're from, what you do, and any current projects that you're working on. Sure. Um, so uh, f- first of all, I'm very excited to be on here. Uh, thank you, Jamie, for inviting me. I'm a huge fan of uh, Black Girl Nerds um, and the tubularity and all the good stuff um, on your uh, on your platform. Um, so I host uh, the Operation Cubicle podcast, uh, where we talk about um, corporate life from a black geeky perspective, um, and that's at operationcubicle.net. Um, and I also do a science blog um, um, called Science Looks Good, uh, which is at sciencelooksgood.com um, and sharifjackson.com as well. Um, and I'm basically under Sharif Jackson um, on all my uh, 
social networks. Um, I like live tweeting shows, especially sci-fi shows such as Extant. Um, and, uh, you know, I just uh, am all about the scientific, geeky, nerdy side of uh, things. So I'm very happy to be here. Awesome. Thank you for coming on tonight to co-host. So I'm going to introduce our wonderful guests. Our guests are Greg Walker and Mickey Fisher, the producers, the executive producers of the show Extant. Greg Walker is a producer and writer known for Without a Trace, Smallville, and Vegas. He is also the producer of the CBS series Extant. And Mickey Fisher is an L.A.-based TV film writer, originally from Ohio, grew up on Spielberg, Lucas, Zemeckis, and the Muppets, and never grew out of them. <laughs> and he's also the creator and executive producer of Extant, um, which is also produced by Steven Spielberg. Extant is a story that revolves around astronaut Molly Woods, played by Holly Berry, who returns home to her family inexplicably pregnant after 13 months in outer space on a solo mission. Welcome, Greg Walker and Mickey Fisher, to the show, everybody. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for coming on. Thank, Thank you. you. Woohoo! All right, so yeah, I I want to get started by asking you first. Um, how did and and I, feel free to jump in. There's no certain order. Whoever wants to answer the question first, but how did you come up with the concept of the story about Extant? Well. I'll jump. I'll jump in first. Yeah, this is weird because Greg and I usually were in a room for these kind of things, and so we, you know, we we our our chemistry is effortless. Uh, so this, <laughs> <laughs> so so yeah, we may have to like throw the ball to each other. But uh, so just in the beginning of it, I um, you know, it originally started the the very first kernel of the idea was actually for a one person play, because um, I've been writing plays for a long time i started in theater and uh and i had been making my own independent films and things like that and and i got to this point where i where it, you know making a making an independent film it's i guess making anything really but it's such an uphill battle and you're and and there's never enough time and there's never enough money and, and so my reaction to that at one point was go you know i'm just going to do a one-person play and and why doesn't anybody write sci-fi plays right now what it, you could do it pretty easily you could do it with um you know minimal sets and you could use big ideas and and um, so I started coming up with this idea about this guy, an astronaut who was alone on a space station and would gradually start to lose his mind over a period of time and and um, and start to hallucinate these people from his past. And I thought maybe he could use projection. And and uh, and then right around that time that I was thinking about this pretty like pretty obsessively, this movie Moon came out with uh, Sam Rockwell, which was a fantastic movie. But it kind of made me put the put the idea on the shelf for a bit because it was just a little too similar in tone. And um, and then I got to the point when I when I moved out to to California and I knew I wanted to break into television and, and I was starting to, I, I knew I also wanted to write like a really complex, uh, interesting female character. Cause I, like a lot of male writers, I had been sidelining my female characters a lot. And I, I really was a challenge myself to create something, you know, somebody that was complex and interesting and flawed. And, and, uh, but I also wanted to write somebody extraordinary and, and, and who more extraordinary than an astronaut. And, uh, and that idea popped back into my head and, and almost immediately the idea of like, Oh, what if she sees that person who's who's somebody she loved in the past, and then she comes home from the solo mission and finds out she's pregnant? And um, I started writing a little bit of that, and I went to hang out with this friend of mine. We were seeing a play in Hollywood, and we were standing outside at intermission. And my friend said, "What are you working on?" And I said, "Well, I'm working on this on this TV pilot, and it's about this female astronaut. She's she's in space for 13 months. She comes home. She's she's been up space in space by herself, and she comes home and finds out she's pregnant." And my friend said. Oh, that's cool. And so I kind of <laughs> knew right then I was like, all right, I have to finish this because you know, that instant reaction was like enough to keep me going. 
but that's really like the initial the the initial idea for it. And then I sat down to I I think it took me about a month to write the the first draft of it, and and a lot of sort of false starts and rabbit holes. I have three notebooks worth of uh, you know going in the wrong direction at times, and 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 then I came up with the idea that you know that she had this family here, and she had a a husband and a son, and and pretty shortly after that, as I started writing, I I had the idea that the son was was uh, this humanic. He was a, a neo revolutionary type of android that her husband was creating, and it and it just seemed to like open up this really rich vein of story between this family. And so and that was kind of one of the big questions that people asked me early on: Why did you choose to write about these two big sort of sci fi ideas this this alien baby immaculate conception and this and this artificial intelligence story? And and to me, like by that point, I had just combined them. I was really writing a story about a family, uh, mm-hmm. a really extraordinary family. So. Um, so yeah, that was it. I wrote the pilot and then I entered it, uh, into a contest and, uh, in early of last year. And the, the idea of the contest is really that they try to, to get you representation. So, so when you're a writer or sort of the outside, like I was, it, it was one of the ways I was really trying to break in. And I was a finalist in this contest and they helped me sign with the manager and the, the manager helped me, uh, shepherd me to get signed with this agency and the agency, uh, the very first thing they did was say, let's start at the top. Let's, uh, let's take this to the guy who does this better than anybody else. Let's go to Steven Spielberg. Wow. wow. Dream come true. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, you know, a lifelong hero and just the idea that he would even like see my name and passing mm-hmm. on a piece of paper somewhere was, you know, strange enough, but the, uh, you know, but then the fact that he read it and he, and he liked it and, and that the, the Amblin television that they decided to move forward was, yeah, it was a dream come true. I mean, for me, it was like, you know, I was, I went from zero to 120 and, you know, from not really knowing many people in the industry at all to, to, to being inside a, a you know, like the dream factory and the dream works, you know, and, um, and then shortly after that, the very first step was looking for a showrunner because you, know, you guys probably know it's like the, you know, the showrunner job is not like really an entry level position. And yeah. <laughs> it was my first job in TV. And, and so right away we started looking for uh, for showrunner. And, and that's when uh, Mr. Walker came into my life. Tall, dark and <laughs> handsome. He walked into your life. <laughs> I barely made it. It was the day I was with that, the meeting with Mickey. Um it was the day uh, there was a school shooting, a tragedy, a school shooting in Santa Monica at Santa mm-hmm. Monica College, and the president was here. Whenever the president's here, you know, he just goes. Our neighborhood goes into lockdown, and so I couldn't leave. I literally couldn't leave my neighborhood. The, the streets were blocked. I couldn't go anywhere. So I called them and said, "I can't make it." They said, "If you can make it by four o'clock, you can have this meeting." And they had met every other showrunner. They were doing kind of a bake off, and so I remember getting in my car and I'm like, "I can make it." And I was driving along the freeway, and my my assistant was on the phone. He's like, "You better slow down, man. You sound like you're going too fast." And I screeched up to the gates, and Amblin, where Steven Spielberg has his office, the gates look exactly they're they're modeled from um from Jurassic Park, right, Mickey? Yeah, nice. yeah, yeah. Big wooden yeah, so these yeah, massive, massive gates. Gate. Pull up to him, and they kind of creak open eerily. Wow. And like, what am I getting into here? Uh, but I barely made it, and the Mickey and I hit it off right then. Nice, nice. Well, I'm going to ask a question from Twitter, and then I'll pass it over to Sharif to ask his question. Sure. On Twitter, Kia Barbie, she asked, she would love to know how long the process was from creation to the pilot being produced. Uh, from the creation of, like, just from the writing standpoint, um, you know, it's a little tricky because I wrote it, the, the pilot, in 2012. Um, you know, it's like I said, I, I think I sat down to write it sometime around the, the you know, March or April and it took me about a month to write it. And then the same kind of thing happened where I wrote this pilot and I thought, this is it. This is the best thing I've written. And 
And then I went to see Prometheus and that summer. And Prometheus had like this sort of, you know, this immaculate conception idea in the middle of it. And I thought, well, that's it. <laughs> You're like, that's it for this script that will go on the shelf, or at least it'll be like a nice writing sample. And so I put it on the shelf for, for months and months and months until I saw the, the, the notice for that contest come up early of last year. And, and that was like, I think I entered the contest at the beginning of March and I found out I was a finalist at the end of March. And so, so really for probably eight or nine months, it just sat on the shelf because I thought it was too similar to something else and I, and, and the, that it might be uh, against it. But once it started, once the ball started rolling, I mean, Greg and I, we met, was it mid June, Greg, that we met yeah. for the first time yeah. mid June. And wow. then he and I spent a month and a half or so, uh, um, cause really, cause when I came in for the pilot, all I had, I had written the pilot on specs. So I'd written the first episode basically. And I had some ideas for where to go and the character in this. But once Greg and I started working together, he and I spent a lot of time developing a big overview of where, you know, where the first season could go and where these characters, the journeys, the characters would take. And, and then an idea for where the show could go after that. And, and, and then we, uh, went out and, and, and started pitching it to, uh, you know, pitching it all over town with the guys from Amblin. Uh, and that was, that was the end of July, early August. And we sold the show, uh, the, the announcement hit on August 7th, which was my 40th birthday. So it was mm. the very first wow. thing I ever sold actually happened on my 40th birthday. And, yeah. uh, and we were off to the races. So Mickey's, got- Mickey's, Mickey's a classic 20 year overnight success. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I know. Luckily I yeah, slipped right in under the radar. Uh, but yeah, then we, so Greg and I, we, we pitched the show and then, uh, and we sold it, and then I think we started the writers' room in, um, you know, right about now of last year. So really, like early early October, and then we were in production by February, right? Right. And then the, we did something unusual, and this matters to anybody, but the network let us do this. One of the network executives, studio executives, um, was one of the studio executives that Shepard had lost, and they had a real uh, great success in Lost by starting a kind of what was like we call a mini camp, which is not the official writers' room where you usually have six to seven weeks to kind of get up and running and get your shows up and get and scripts ready, get all this stuff approved, um, and start shooting your episodes. And this one we needed more because this so much of the show needed was dependent on the mythology getting hammered out and figuring out the kind of moves and the, the bigger universal moves of the show rather than the kind of episode, 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 uh, kind of plot lines. So we spent a lot of time. We probably spent seven weeks just with four writers in a, in a hot stuffy room in, um, Burbank or where was it? North Hollywood trying to figure out and hammering out the kind of larger, um, you know, mytholo- mythology and character moves for the season. Oh, wow. I, 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 th- I, th- I think that that's really cool, and I actually didn't realize that that was kind of a a unique thing that you come up with the mythology first before you kind of drill down into the um, the uh, episodic nature of it. So it usually works like the other way. Well, it depends. You know, I mean, when a shows that are you know more procedural or episodic based, you don't tend to put that much of investment in mythology. I think at at their own peril, those shows. Um, the shows I've been on, you would, you know, you would kind of use in that seven weeks, you would spend probably your first week talking at bigger arcs 
the season, maybe two weeks, you'd come in kind of armed for bear. But then after that, you'd be working at hammering out the individual episodes. And we kind of flipped that process. There was much more time spent in terms of the mythology and the arcs than there was for talking about what was going to happen in episode four. And what was interesting at the very end of the year, we kind of looked back at where we were. We hit most of our marks that we wanted to in terms of the stuff that we set out to do in September and October. Most of those, it may have seemed crazy to people, but most of those were planned <laughs> out uh, months earlier. Nice, nice, nice. Now, now, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to put you guys on on the spot a little bit. Um, do you guys have a favorite character on the show? Uh, I'm not going to do that. That's like you know, it's like I have two kids. It's like saying which one I like better. <laughs> I mean, I would say that I, I, I am in a unique position in that I got to see all kind of Mickey's babies laid out in front of me when I got to read the script and was in with them early on. And you know, most of the characters in the show. Um, gener- are generated in, in Mickey's pilot script. We added some and some good ones like Odin um, and we expanded some like Julie but there were there, there's a real um, what I think is one of the best parts about Mickey's writing is the kind of grounded humanity in the characters and so there's I don't feel like there are characters who are in another universe from others. Now Yasumoto's pretty pretty flipping weird. Yeah. He's but, on the edge there, yeah. <laughs> but but everybody's kind of he's he represents one end, you know, and maybe Sparks represents the other end. Oddly they're paired. But the rest of everybody feels like they're in this kind of like ontological, plausible universe. And I really love how Mickey was able to do that. And it's always grounded because he Mickey's a very emotional guy and he writes emotionally. So they all had a kind of real emotional truth to them. In my mind, the way I read it. Well, I will go out. I'll, I'll take the I'll take the bait and go out on a limb here, just to say that I think that that for me, I think Ethan is. If I have an avatar in the show, yes, that in, in some ways, in a lot of ways, it is Ethan because it's a lot of the questions and the themes. You know, as much as I love Molly, and she was the first creation of it, and she's certainly the centerpiece of the show. And there's so much I love about that character. But I feel like him that Ethan is a way to explore the big themes. He's kind of the way into those themes that Greg and I really clicked on early on, which, you know, what is what does it mean to be human, and 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 uh, and and the, those questions of our connection to each other, and all that stuff, the the sort of thematic stuff where we wanted the show to live, and 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 so for me, I feel like when I wrote those early scenes with Ethan, or like there's that scene in the pilot where John is defending the Humanics Project and defending right. Ethan to the board members, and. And it gets into this con, you know, this question of like, what, you know, are we just this collection of information and and experiences, that, or or is there something more divine about us? Is there is there a soul essentially? And and like and that was a conversation, like it's a constant conversation, a war with myself. And and so I so like I said, I feel like that a lot of times when I'm embedded in the story, there the like the parts of me that are more personally embedded in the story are I find their way out through Ethan. So um, so he may not be my favorite, but he's probably the most like me. And and uh, yeah. There's a little bit of me. I do feel a little robotic in that way. So you're so getting in trouble with the rest of the cast. Now. I know, I know, I know. I'll never be able to show my face again. I love Ethan. He's my favorite too. Yeah, I think that... Pierce Gagnon. Pierce Gagnon is just a ridiculous actor for his age. I mean, crazy. You know, he could be twenty. But yeah, I, I kind of, kind of want to see. One of the exciting things is, is having been a part of, you know, which may just be an asterisk in his career uh, because I think he's on this on really big things, but he's so naturally talented and also a great studier of performance and people. He's mm. really, it's, it was a blast to work with him. It was really, really fun. I was surprised because, you know, you think kid actor and you, you run for the hills. You think there's going to be like a little twerp. You're going to, you know, end up, you know, asking for colored M&Ms. <laughs> and, and he ended up being just the greatest kid to be around and super intelligent and committed. I, I loved him. Yeah, he's a great, great kid. 
Now, the issue of diversity has been a problem in primetime TV, and I really admire the fact that you guys have a black female protagonist that's on this show, um, played by the wonderful Holly Berry. What are your thoughts about the lack of diversity in TV, and specifically in the genre of science fiction? Well, you know, for me, I, I, was, I was thinking about this the other day. I read this article. I can't remember where I saw it, but it was about how, you know, that how certain characters, you know, they've become actually more marginalized over the years mm-hmm. that like, you know, the Cosby show was a huge, it was a monster hit. You know, it was, it was a monster hit with black audiences and white audiences alike. And, you know, that now that things seem to be becoming more, more and more niche and, and, but, you know, science fiction, I, I, some of the, my, you know, my favorite stuff was always a very integrated world. You know, like I feel, you know, Star Trek, the next generation or, or even the original Star Trek or, you know, some of those things that they, that that there was always an opportunity for that because and and not only an opportunity to um just to have a diverse cast on television but also to present a a, a version of the future that I really want to see and that I think we're headed towards anyway you know so I mean and I feel like you know the way that we went about casting the show you know Hallie obviously and and her people were very aggressive about uh she really responded to Mickey's script and it was kind of a no brainer casting her. But also, as soon as Hallie's name came in the conversation, I couldn't see Molly as anyone else. And I think, and, and it, it became very simple. It wasn't, it wasn't, a, you know, an aggressively, it wasn't a move towards diversity. It was the right move for the story. Um, yeah. And, but I've also think that television, you know, diversity is connected to specificity. You know, the mm-hmm. more you're telling about somebody's ex- personal experience and how specific that personal experience is, the more that you can actually encourage and, 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 and expand the, the range of the diversity in the cast and television has just become less and less. I mean, network television has become less and less specific and more generic as it's gotten older, you know, and it's yeah. become, you know, a kind of a, a, a fairly tabula rasa storytelling device. And there are shows that step, that, that step it out and, and, and are more specific than others, but it's a challenge to be that. And Mickey's script was really distinct and really specific. And I think it allowed for a kind of opening of diversity that you wouldn't normally have. If you were just having cops and you just plug and play, you know, then you're in the kind of ethnic roulette game of like, okay, well, we have to have we have to have a balanced cast as opposed to we really want a specific people who are interesting in it. Well, let's talk about their experience. Hmm. Good answer. Um, I'll go to Twitter and then Sharif, um, you can ask your next question. On Twitter, Water Cooler Combos asks, can the Extant team also speak about the Amazon deal that made the show profitable even before airing? Well, we can speak that we love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wish every show I ever worked on had it. Um, we love the access to the audience that Amazon provides. We love the fact that it is a platform that feels new and vibrant and for people to be able to access the show. And it, yeah, it, it infused the show with a kind of capital base that, you know, never took the heat off. And we have, we, we always, as any show does, struggle financially to make a show work. But it certainly was nice for the people who are, you know, writing the checks that they had that income coming in. Mm-hmm. Nice, awesome. Uh, oh, oh, did 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 did, did, did you want to add on that, Greg? Oh, that was Greg. Sorry, yeah, back. Okay, sorry. Yeah, I, I think I I just I concur with Greg. You know, I'm I I know little about the you know the the nuts and bolts of of the way it works, and uh, but I you know for me it's just exciting like for, to know that. You know, like shortly after our launch here, that it launched on Amazon in the UK, and then it's it's just a whole new way. And it, I see more and more like the the networks. I feel like they have talked about this, this these kind of moves, and and really like making the shows available to people 
in the way that they want to watch them when they want to watch them. And, and, and so every step toward like, you know, this Amazon deal, I, I feel is a positive for people, for fans of the shows. But we never got a Kindle. I just want that to be clear. And yeah. got, what? So, no no free Amazon Prime. Nothing like that. I'm, I'm still waiting out there. Missed Amazon. opportunity. Missed yeah. opportunity. And our delivery <laughs> drones. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The drones. That's right. I totally forgot about those. Uh, th- those will be coming soon. I, I, yeah, they'll I be on Xstat before they ever be in your neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, we no, had right. one. There was a moment, Greg, we, 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 it was going to be in the finale, but there was a beat where we were trying to write w- what was basically like a small delivery drone into it, and we ended up uh, uh, yeah, that one scrapping away. a little bit of the story. Yeah. We, just, we, we pivoted away from that little bit of the story, but you never know, it may show up again. You never know. <laughs> yeah, so so uh, so uh, me like a lot of other people, you know, like we enjoy the show, like we t- tweet during the show, and w- one thing I notice is that you know, like um, that, like uh, you guys are really active uh, with engaging with the audience actually mm-hmm. during the show. Um, I know that I was kind of taken aback when like I made a comment during the first episode with uh, Lou Gossett Jr. And I made a comment like, uh, like a uh, man, this is like another like, like, uh, like a uh, crappy black dad side story. And, and like, we actually got to have a bit of a conversation about that. Um, when, when a Mickey actually replied to me and like, I was like, wow, like, like that kind of takes a lot for somebody that, you know, um, is responsible for a show and like, obviously kind of protective of the characters and the story to actually engage with like a, somebody that's not saying something that's a hundred percent like positive about Mm -hmm. it. Um, so I really appreciated that. Um, what kind of drives you to be, um, I guess, so like active with the, uh, audience on the, uh, social media side? Well, okay, Sharif, I have to say that I, for one, I didn't realize that that was you till just now. That I think was, I was like with that conversation that happened. And, and it was one of those interesting moments where, you know, I feel like it's such a fine line because I, it's, to me, that's the most beautiful thing about it is it's the opportunity to have a conversation about, about the stuff that you're, the things that you're trying to get across and the characters and the ideas. And it's like, it's, I don't know, like the, even that moment of jumping in to say, well, here's how we saw this was, was probably treacherous and most people would have, you know, most, you know, creators or, or, you know, writers, producers of the show wouldn't have jumped in to, to defend an idea or something. And I never wanted to like jump in and just defend something, but I always like to say, well, here's, you know, the, just for the insight of like, here's how we thought of that. And, and here's, here's where we were coming from with that. I feel like is an opportunity to, to give an insight to people who are fans of the show. And if they're, if they are live tweeting and if they are throwing those things out there in the ether, then there's, then there's an, a need for it or maybe a desire for it. And, and so, I, you know, like I feel like it's a fine line. It's that you don't want that that I wouldn't want it necessarily. I wouldn't want it to get to the point where it was really dictating the the, the stories right. that we're telling. Right. But but it is an opportunity. Like the the greatest joy I had in having doing it is watching when when things come together and people really get it. You know, or when people really there's a moment where things are coming together and and then I realize like oh we did our job well as storytellers that is as effective as as we'd hoped and. You know, it's like, it's almost like being able, you know, if you're a filmmaker to stand in the back of a, or you're a playwright to stand in the back of the theater while your play or your movie is going on and you can feel it in the audience, you can feel the energy of it. And, and, and there isn't really that mechanism for on television uh, other than, other than Twitter. And so, so I try to, I, you know, I try to do that kind of thing sparingly in the sense of just, if it's like, I feel like it's a sort of positive part of the conversation. And and it's interesting to me too, to hear what people think of it. I'm, you know, I'm fairly thick skinned, so I'm. So I can I kind of take it all in and 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 
you know, I want to know if it's effective or not. And that, and it really helps. Well, one of the things that's interesting about Mickey and I think that thick skin is maybe true, but he is, he is authentically one of the nicest people I've ever met. And so he's, he doesn't get defensive. A lot of people are just, I think, ill-equipped on a personality level to engage in the way that Mickey did. I, for example, I can't read reviews. I can't really, I mean, I just started, I really loved actually the, the, the Twitter following uh, for extent, it kind of changed my view of all this just because there was such, even when people didn't like the show and there are many times where they justifiably had issues or, or just didn't buy in, there was a real passion to the following that, that made me excited. And I kind of followed along, but Mickey was the person kind of the ringleader there who would, who would, who would hang with it and had such a great attitude about it. I think a lot of people can't handle that level of confrontation or don't want to engage on that level. It's just a personality thing. But I, I loved I, I loved what Mickey did on that, and I also loved the conversations. Even when they were negative, they were they were yeah, always yeah. illuminating in a way that made me feel like, okay, because I hate reviews, and reviews you can't do anything with. But this is like a dialogue and a conversation that you can actually kind of find out what people are responding and not to. And I, I, it was a real privilege to have our, our Twitter audience was awesome. And yeah. I, would, I, I would, you know, I, I would, to me, that was the, one of the highlights of the year. Absolutely. I remember how proud we were when, when you guys started really taking ownership of the show, like, you know, the, this podcast and other fans of the show and, and then, it, and, and for me to see people get excited about it. And, and like Greg was saying too, I mean, it is, it, it, we learn from what people, from what people don't respond to too. We had this, we'd always have this saying in the writer's room. I, I'm not sure if it was Greg or, or our, one of our writers, Les Bohem, who said it first, but you know, if three people tell you you're drunk, sit down, you know, so for like, mm-hmm. if you're, you know, if you're watching the show with the audience on Twitter and, 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 and everybody's having the same you know, sort of negative response to a, to, to a moment or, or people, or people are confused and, you know, you really see like, oh, we didn't quite hit the mark there. So in that way, I feel like it's, you know, it's a bit of a learning tool too, but, but, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I feel like Greg, you know, like Greg said to you, it's, it, we had an, a, an amazing audience of people to watch it with. And I'm glad you brought that up. Um, and maybe you can sort of go into this a little bit deeper, but when it comes to social media and because you guys are so engaged, do you see some of the feedback from Twitter users, whether they have uh, feedback about the plot lines or the character development? Do you ever look at those um, you know, comments and kind of take that into account when you're going through the creative process or you just sort of go, okay, well, that's good to know and tweet back and just keep it moving? Well, we're so far ahead in terms of stories and you know where we're what we've written by the time something um, is shot or aired rather mm-hmm. that it's hard to do a lot of course correction as yeah. a result of it. Right. And I, I don't know if we would, but there were times where I certainly felt like on a positive level, like people responding. You know, it was a tricky show, and there were a lot of. Uh, big, big, big cooks in this kitchen. Um, and there are a lot of people who had big opinions about the show. And, and sometimes you, you're fighting for something that you think nobody's going to, you know, nobody else likes and you're and they're, you know, the network to their credit would yield to a lot of our ideas, but we weren't, you know, we were going out there on sometimes on very thin ice on our own and to have the audience respond to something positive that we had kind of really gone to bat for and that yeah. people were dubious was very invigorating and it makes you trust your instinct and your intuition and in terms of what people don't like, a lot of the times it was stuff that we agreed didn't work as well and that yeah. we would change later. So a lot of times in terms of some of the relationships that weren't clicking or some credulity issues where we thought like, oh, we agree. You know, we can't, we, right. <laughs> our best 
to fix it, you know, we, but we didn't, we kind of botched it in terms of writing or we didn't, it didn't work in terms of in post. And so sometimes we were in complete agreement with the audience and that would be something where we would feel again, validated that the audience was clicking on the same, you know, the cylinders were all firing together. Yeah. And kudos to Sergio Harford who plays Marcus. He's very engaged too on Twitter. Oh, oh my yeah. God. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. He's got a great Twitter game. <laughs> yeah yeah he 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 i made sure to uh favorite a lot of my smart snarky tweets about how, how like marcus would just pop up like right in your face <laughs> so sergio he, will he, take any publicity he can get i love it. <laughs> and he, he worked harder for the show than i think sometimes some of the people were paid to do oh yeah definitely definitely so um and i'll have you ask another question next uh sharif but sure. on twitter the Seventh Matrix, he asks, similar to Lost, are there any plans to expand the world of Extant further through viral marketing like webisodes or novels? Yeah, I would certainly love to do that kind of thing. And I, you know, I feel like it was such a monumental task the first season, just getting it on its feet and, and just getting the show itself right. You know, and, I, and I would hear this a lot of times through through, you know, from Greg or from, you know, some of the other partners that, you know, along the way of like, and like, it's, it's a first year show, you know, and, and they're always, they're always hurdles and obstacles. And, and so you get so entrenched in it, you're trying to do things right. And then you, for even things like, you know, going to Comic Con or, or, you know, things like that, or you, you're not even really trying to think about that stuff. And we tried to do a little bit. There was a really cool, um, website that they made where you could design your own humanic and stuff like that. And we started to scratch the surface of those things. But, but I really feel like it is the kind of, it's the kind of story and it's the kind of world where there could be a big expanded universe to it and, and other characters and graphic novels and, and, and um, you know, web series and all that stuff I think would be really cool to do. But, but it's, I feel like we couldn't really do it until we found our footing mm. in, in the flagship of it, you know, in the, in the series itself. And I'm not sure how early Lost started doing that. I can't really remember, you know, if it, if they started doing it in season two or season three, but, but I kind of feel like maybe they were in the same position because it was so huge at the beginning and, uh, <laughs> and it was such a, you know, such a, uh, a shaggy beast, you know, that maybe it was, maybe it's one of those things that once you get more comfortable with it in your storytelling, you go, okay, well now we can take the time to, to do this other thing. It will be complimentary, but not absolutely essential to the, you know, the main storyline. Nice. Um, I was wondering if uh, you guys had anything um, especially funny or hilarious, any bloopers that maybe happen on set that uh, you'd like to share, any practical jokers out there on the set or <laughs> anything like that? Well, Mickey spent more time on the set. I was usually locked away in a story room or a post being miserable. But, yeah. uh, <laughs> I, would, I would say that the, I have seen the blooper reel. I mean, you know, our show, I think at, at times we, we can be crazy be faulted for we were spectacularly unfunny at times and we both feel like we could have been much funnier at times because we had actually really good writers and we had a real like the guy who written on the office before peter rocco who wrote some incredible episodes on the show mm. and this show just kind of was like humor proof for a while and we were really yeah. we bang our heads against the wall trying to get in there just, you know and you have somebody a woman running around with an alien baby in her or, and stolen from her it was hard to get funny but um we're going to do better next year. Uh, but the, the, the actual blooper reel that's coming out on the DVD, and this is not a plug at all, but, but uh, the, it's pretty <laughs> funny. It's, uh, there, there are some good moments. You know, Hallie comports herself so professionally, but also um, so with such warmth and ease on the set that she invites a lot of kind of 
cracking up and broken takes. And so that's kind of where I saw that stuff. Um, and certainly, and, and Goran and Ethan would goof around all the time. They were like father and son. So you got to see <laughs> oh, a yeah. lot of playfulness there. But Mickey saw, Mickey saw more of the sausage being made. He can tell you. Well, you know, I th- well, just to talk about like the, you know, Goran and Pierce for one, like uh, Goran, they had all, so many big scenes together and Pierce kept a running tab of a swear jar tab on Goran <laughs> for the entire shooting of the thing. And but, I mean, it was like, it was, it, I think it was over a thousand dollars by got the an end. IPad, you know? right? you got an yeah. IPad, yeah. And so Goran got him an iPad, you know, for the rap present, I think that was kind of like to settle the tab, but I mean, it was constantly, <laughs> and so you'd be sitting there, you know, you know, a lot of times like the video village where the, you know, the directors and the writer producer, we'd be watching the monitor and the, and they would be on the, you know, say the bedroom set or something. And, and you would hear they would be doing the scene, and and the director would yell "cut," and then you would hear Goran swear and and uh, you know yell a, whatever it was, and then you'd hear this little voice say five dollars." You know, there are also times where like Pierce knew every one of Goran's lines; he'd memorized them, which yeah. would drove everybody you know drove Goran crazy because Goran would you know sometimes struggle with his lines, and and there'd be times where Pierce would play. You remember the couple times where Ethan was you know he was down, he had you know he had been disabled, and so he was lying there like a corpse on on a on a slab, and Goran would get halfway through his scene, and as it often happened of actors he'd stumble on a line or you know and then he he'd launch into some kind of expletive tirade and then you know of course then then uh then break a second and then pierce would in his comatose state utter his lines exactly on book and, and perfectly <laughs> and uh so pierce turned out to be kind of like the dialogue coach as well yeah exactly well he and, and one of our favorite i think both for both of us one of our favorite like behind the scenes story things is that pierce you know, he's, he has to go to school during the day too and he always has to. Um, he's got a. Uh, he has a tutor, and then his and his mom. He's always working in school stuff. And he actually he came up to Greg, and and uh, he started pushing for this idea of Ethan riding a bike. And he said, "Look, I, I, he went up to Greg, and I think it was early, early on, maybe like oh, the third early, or yeah. fourth episode, right?" And he said, "I think I think Ethan should ride a bike." And you know, Greg being like a a good father and 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 uh, a good role model. So well, you know, like uh, we'll think about it. But but why don't you why don't you write a report? Is this how it happened, Greg? Where you said, "Why don't you write a report?" Or or come up well, with I mean, a present. I, I, have, I have two boys almost the same age as, as, as Pierce. So showing up to work was like just, I mean, I leave, I drop kids off at school and then I'd show up at work and there'd be my other kid. And so he was always hounding me to ride a bike because he really liked riding bikes. He's very skillful at riding bikes, as you may have seen from the show. Though we gave him a bike that was impossible to ride because it was kind of a quote unquote future bike that he barely could handle. But he's a good, he's a good <laughs> athlete. So. He kept on bugging me about it, and I just thought, well, okay, let's turn this into a learning experience, and may, that may have annoyed him. But I said, write a report on what future bikes would be like, thinking, I'm going to get rid of him now. I'll never see him again. He'll never bother me again. But instead, Mickey can pick up. Two weeks later, he shows up in our office. Yeah, and he, he, wow. he came down to the – he came walking into uh, – onto the stage carrying this poster board. And he said, I did it. I, 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 I came up with this idea. And I took one glance. I said, don't tell me anything about it yet. Let's, let's take you up to the writer's room. And, and you should do this for the writers. So we did. So we brought him up. And he actually, like, in front of the entire writer's room and me and Greg, uh, he gave a whole presentation on. Wow. It, he had a poster board. And the front of the poster board was the history of bicycles. And, and so it went all the way back to, like, you know, the penny farthing. Or is that what they're called? The penny yeah, farthing? penny farthing. Yeah. And then, and then all the way through, and then, and then with like this sort of great bit of showmanship, like this flourish, he flipped it around, and on the on the other side were like the future of uh, the future bicycles, and so that was pretty much it. Like we're all, you know, and the writers were asking him questions, and they were kind of digging, you know, like, well, well, how would this work for for 
for Ethan. Why, why would why would his dad want to let him do this? And, like, and, and he was answering story questions essentially. And by the time he left, I think we'd all decided like we got to give him bike. <laughs> we, we have to let him ride. So it, it worked. No, there was no way we were not going to give him a bike at that point. It actually turned out we ended up turning a story that kind of worked. I was surprised. So uh, yeah, but it was all because he came in with this you know twenty minute you know completely worked out presentation with with a really convincing argument as to where bikes will go in the future that of course none of us had thought about it all that you know like when a kid does that kind of work it was hard not to say yeah okay you're gonna get a bike in a scene wow we have um another question from twitter and hopefully i pronounced this name right uh question for the writers whose idea and this is from marmar82 on twitter by the way question for the writers whose idea was it to bring hiroyuki sonata on the show he plays yasumoto I'm just asking because I'm a huge fan of his. I think well, I mean, Lana was the first person, right? Yeah, I think our casting director suggested him. I mean, it was kind of, you know, it's not a wide range of the way that Mickey wrote the character. There weren't a lot of people who, who you'd be looking at um, based on the kind of quality of actor you needed and, and the, the gravity of that role. And, and, and Hero's name came up early, and we loved his work. Um, and so that was, it was kind of a no-brainer. He's a really interesting guy too. Once you meet him, because you've seen him in a lot of these things, and he's such a genre staple, too. You know, and even like we we took a lot of heat for the fact that like his character in our show was similar in a lot of ways to his character on Helix too, which you know just just by accident. But but the more I started learning about him, you know, when he when I first met him, we started talking about it, it was just sort of his background, and and he actually he was like a Japanese Broadway star, and he'd done these Broadway musicals like Little Shop of Horrors. He was the Japanese oh, wow. And this and that, and so we kind of bonded because I went to school for musical theater, so we sort of we started kind of bonding over musicals and stuff. And and I went home one night and I started looking him up, and I knew he'd had kind of a history uh, that he'd been around for a while. And then I started looking up more and more, and 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 there are these videos of him, like his stunt reels and things like that. I mean, he's done he he I mean everything from you know martial arts to really interesting dramas to 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 some great uh, samurai stuff. I thought you know, like uh, yeah, he's just he's a really interesting guy, and I thought he 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 brought so much to it, and just the. The, the sweetest guy in person, too. Wow. Great. Cool. Um, what I was, I was curious about what are some of the challenges of sort of pacing a show during a standard kind of TV season, like in terms of like, like a, do I want to reveal this now or do I make the audience wait? Like, like how difficult is it to sort of make those decisions in terms of when to make like big reveals on a, on a show? Well, I mean, you, it's painful because you're no, you, you're hoping that you get it right, and you hope that you don't. I mean, the the it, the saw is true. It's like you don't want to wait too long because you sometimes you really you can make a mistake in a writer's room of relishing the tension that may not be there for the audience. So, yeah. the big reveal in episode four, people would be like, and I think early on we kind of waited a little too long with some moments um, that may 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 not be enough. But then the other side of just kind of having a shotgun approach to kind of having, you know, minefield of explosions of, of plot revelation. Sometimes, you know, you you lose a lot of your plot moves or your story. You burn through story real quickly and then you have anything left. So it's always it's always a debate. And we just tried to play it through character, what felt right for the characters at that moment. Um, and we were right some of the time when we weren't on others. But it's a great debate always and never an easy one. Yeah, it is like as it is kind of the constant the, the 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 constant challenge. And I know in our writers' room, like especially early on, that we the just the idea of of the pace of the show because it was kind of a tricky show. That there were certain things that once you 
you know, once Molly tells John or once, uh, you know, the baby is taken or something like that, like the, the pedal goes down and it's really hard to stop and have, you know, those character moments because that too. And so, so it's, you know, there are certain things that you have to give up. Like we, we had that uh, there in the third episode, there was a bit where Ethan went to school and, and, and that was something that I think that we thought maybe would, would, would give us a little more opportunity for story. But the second that the, they went on the run, that was pretty much, we never went back to that, you know? And so it, it comes with like a whole host of problems, but I think that was a smart thing going back to what Greg was saying earlier about doing the little mini camp beforehand. We were able to, to, to pick a couple of those spots, like here where we think the big tent pole moves are. And so we knew that, it, that, that, you know, that this was going to happen in episode four or, and then by episode 10 or 11, that this would happen. And, I think it helped early on to give us those signposts. And um, so you never, you, we never totally lost our way in the forest or, or if we did, it wasn't for very long. So here's the big question. Um, first of all, congratulations on getting renewed for a second season. Uh, us as fans, we were waiting with bated breath to hear the word about the renewal of the second season. So we just want to know any kind of hints. What, what can we expect in season two of Extant? Wow, well, this is the first time we've been given this question. It'll make you sound like you have a real prepared response. I want to hear. <laughs> no, no, what, what you just heard was uh, like dog paddling. It was verbal dog paddling. Um, no, no, we certainly we certainly have some ideas for it, and it's and and we and things that we well because the, the reality is there were a lot of things that we left open ended. You know, we wanted to just in case we didn't get the second season, we did we did want to to give a finale that that hopefully tied up a lot of stuff or at least, or at least tied up some big questions. And then, but then we were able to leave some things open, like what is going to happen to Ethan now? What is his future? And, and now that the offspring is out in the world and, and so there will be those things to deal with. So I, so one, I think it's safe to say that, that, that though Molly was successful in space, that, um, you know, that there still exists the, uh, the danger here on earth. And, and I don't think those things are going to, the, the other, the other beings are going to, uh, are, going to stop anytime soon. And and then also I think that, that what happened to Ethan, his sort of, uh, you know, transcendental uh, state at the end is going to lead to a whole new host of problems for him and the, and the family as well. But, but uh, I don't know, Greg, how, what would, does that, what do you think? <laughs> I, that was, I hear the chat dancing right now. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> pretty damn vague and awesomely so. <laughs> I, I really should have a career in politics, right? I should be like, right. <laughs> I think when you look at the, so much about Extent has always been, especially on a, a you know an oddball sci-fi show that was written almost as like a, a, a Zen Cohen. Um, if you ever read the pilot script, which I, if, hopefully you can get online, and I was, you know, I don't, maybe I'm violating Mickey's copyrights. Sorry, uh, it's out there. Don't worry. It's a wonderfully spare script, and the fact that it exists in this kind of mega audience network scape is always shocked to me. But one of the things that's really great about it is this um, always an attempt to kind of wrestle with these big big weighty meaty issues about what makes us human and what what is technology in our lives and how can we relate to it what's the question of soul and then balancing against a really kind of hopefully awesome you know rocket fuel thriller um and so yeah and then an emotional family story as well and so whenever you will see a battle being played out next season that will be between those elements, between the kind of meteor sci-fi issues, the kind of engine of the thriller and the emotional storytelling. And I know that's vague, but I think that this is what we figured out or those three things really work on the show. And it's just how the stew is composed, what, what, how that gumbo is made and how it tastes. That'll be what we'll see in season two. 
you're much better at that than I am. See, you can tell who's been doing this longer. Yeah, wrote it. <laughs> yeah, no, all all planned, all planned. So that was great, planned answer. I like it. Um, so, so like one thing that I really loved about the show is, um, as I said at the um, intro, you know, I'm a science blogger. I'm really into sort of space and NASA and astronauts and the space, um, like the program. And one thing, like astronauts are basically geniuses. Like they have to know so much about not only science but like just just a general command of like technology and problem solving i really loved how i felt like molly was a really believable astronaut in terms of how she approached you know obviously like the logic behind kind of problems that that you know involved you know even even other life forms um did like you guys do any kind of um you know what, what kind of research did like you guys do in terms of how an astronaut and a scientist would actually kind of respond to these kind of extraterrestrial things i mean did like you have like a science consultant was it like just like just like watching like like um other movies or like a reading about kind of like real life kind of nasa events like i'm really i'm like curious about that process well, we had, I mean, Mickey, Mickey can talk specifically about his relationship with an astronaut consultant we had, but I think that we, the, the idea was to be as science-based as we could without getting in the way of a good story, um, but never letting our desire to tell a good story blow us out on such a science level that it would never happen. So, and, and you know, what's, what's the driving force behind this, besides Mickey being kind of having a lot of kind of nerdish tendencies himself in that area was Steven Spielberg, who really would take us to task when we would get off a kind of scientific uh, credibility tip. Once we started to go too far um, off the reservation, we would we would hear it from him. So we had to kind of really remain scientifically uh, true most of the time, I mean, you know, like, in terms of how far away the ship was, what kind of communication. You notice that nobody ever has live communication on a video screen from the Seraphim. Um, that was our DP reminding us that that would be a impossible even you know 30 years in the future so we were always trying to be be scientifically accurate and then in terms of the astronaut stuff well mickey mickey established a, con uh, a contact that was invaluable for the whole season yeah we actually we we were put in contact with this uh, astronaut named katie coleman who had done a number of tours in space and aboard the space station and um she'd actually talked to sandra bullock uh when she was prepping for for gravity and and she became a, a, oh, nice. a, a great resource for us and yeah, she she was just awesome, and 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 also because meeting her and talking to her, I think the first time I talked to her, we talked for maybe, about maybe an hour and a half. As she was on a on a road trip, she was driving up uh, through New England, and we just talked about these things. And you know, I'd already written the pilot, and she had read it, and and going back and talking just about her, her, you know, like what how her family reacts to certain things too, because you know, reality is like that she she has a husband and a son, and she would go away. She was gone for seven months aboard the space station, and there is a there is a a process when you come back of, of reintegrating into everyone's life. And there are challenges with that, 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 you know, I had just sort of imagined, but, but that in talking to her, I found like, Oh, that's actually a, a pretty real thing. And we were able to, to get it a little bit more into the, a little bit more into the, the emotional issues of that. So that even aside from the, the technical aspect and some of those things that she really helped out with there, it helped a lot, I think. And, uh, and and Hallie met with her early on too, just to get in like the mindset of it. And and like you were saying, Sharif, one of the interesting things is, you know, they're 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 so fiercely intelligent, and they're so uh, and as far as problem solvers and things, one of my favorite stories is about you know the, the, there's a story about Buzz Aldrin saving the moon mission with a felt tip pen. 
you know, basically like he, you know, saved the lives of the guys on the mission because you know, there was some like toggle switch or something that was, that was broken off and he <laughs> popped the cap off a felt tip pin and jammed it up in there and, and, and saved the day. And, and, and that's the kind of people they, who could, they could do that under that type of pressure. And, and, uh, so, so yeah, so she was there for us for a lot of those kind of questions. There were a lot, there were things in the finale, like the explosive, uh, bolts in the finale. She was one of those people that, you know, say, gosh, would there be any reason to, to, to have, to, to have constructed this thing. And she said, yeah, well, you know, they would, they maybe knew at a certain point they were going to have to decommission this, the Seraphim station and, and they would have prepped it with these explosive bolts. They would, because they would want to, to blow it up and put it in smaller pieces so that there wouldn't be like massive pieces of space junk floating out there. You know, things, just even things like that, that I could call her and ask her those questions. Um, but yeah, so she was great. And then we also had a roboticist come in and give us a demonstration of a, of a robot and, and, oh, nice. uh, yeah, it was so cool. He did this. A roboticist, yeah, a robotic engineer. That's somebody who can dance the robot dance. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> like, it's, a, it's an entire field. Uh, but yeah, so he came in and gave us this demonstration, and, and it was pretty cool because it was a lot of in line with the things that we were imagining for Ethan and, and, and what John's goals were for the Humanics Project. You know, one of our first questions, you're like, what is the end, what is the end game for this robot that you're showing us? And he said, well, they, there's an idea to use them in nursing homes and for companionship for people who don't, who don't have somebody in their life, you know, and, uh, and, and it was right along the lines of what John was saying for humanics in the, in the pilot. So, so we did, we did seek out a lot of that stuff. Uh, early on, we talked to a guy about why does Ethan eat? Uh, you know, we, and we talked to another guy who was a, an AI, uh, or a robotics engineer and, and who helped us kind of figure out a practical reason why Ethan would need to eat food, um, and things like that. So, and then I think also like, like Greg was saying, I'm just sort of a, I'm really into like the, the tech blogs and, and all those, and uh, you know, uh, Wired and those kind of things. I'm always reading those things, and always like when Graphene came out, I was obsessed with Graphene for weeks, and I was pitching Graphene ideas every day in the writers' room, <laughs> you know, like that, that kind of thing. So nice. So, what projects are you guys currently working on, or are you just exclusively working on Exton at this time? Well, I'm, I'm, yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of excellent stuff that's starting to ramp back up. And then I, I, I think for both of us, we're writing, you know, writing other things as well. I'm, you know, certainly I would like to, 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 to keep having an opportunity working in features as well. So I've been writing on some other movie scripts and things. And, uh, and I have a play that I wrote that I'm, that, that, um, we produce that I'm sending out there too. But, but the show is really like, is, is ramping back up pretty quickly. <laughs> I, I may be the only writer who who has a dual career in sci-fi and mob shows. So I, uh, <laughs> I'm doing another uh, show, a pilot for Showtime with Nick Pelleggi, who the Goodfellas, you know, creator and writer, and um, you know the, the the kind of legend of of American mob storytelling. So he and I are doing another an adaptation of a British series right now. Uh, so that's what I do in my other life. So and on one hand, it's like red sauce. Italian life, and the other hand, it's like future little gel cubes that Yasumoto eats. <laughs> you know, like Greg, you're the Venn diagram of those two things. Like that's like your sweet spot. That's going to be, you know, the future mob. Future mob is your. Oh, that would be awesome. Yeah. Yes, that's the show. Oh, God, thank you. That would future be awesome. <laughs> so, um, any other questions, Sharif? Before we uh, get ready to wrap up here. Uh, no questions. I just, uh, you know, I, I remember I had tweeted out, uh, once I was, I was like, how many phones will be snapped in half on this show? Because <laughs> oh, it was yes. just, it was just so hilarious. Like it was like oh, yeah. every time somebody would do something like the phone would just 
snap like a candy bar. And like I was in, you know, and like I was thinking about this when this whole thing kind of recently came out with the iPhone sixes kind of bending. Um, you know, I, I was, I was, I was like, wow, maybe, maybe uh, this is like a little excellent shout out here. I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so no, I don't have any additional questions. I just, I, I just really appreciated how like you guys um, not only address kind of the serious stuff that people were tweeting about the show, but also kind of engage in some of the fun um, as like people were, uh, were live uh, tweeting and all that good stuff. So just wanted to throw that out there and uh, say, thank you. Oh, thanks so much. Yep. And then I just wanted to ask another thing about Twitter, too. So, you know, you engage with us each and every week with doing the live tweeting and Sergio, as I mentioned before. Any other, you know, Steven Spielberg maybe <laughs> coming in, doing a live tweet with us? I know he's not on Twitter, but maybe using the extant Twitter account to engage with uh, some of the fans of the show or even Halle Berry or Goran coming in to do live tweets. Will we expect anything like that in season two? I think I, I just feel like I, I, each year people get more and more open to it. I mean, it, it you know, it's just those people are very busy. And in the case of Steven Spielberg, he has ten shows, so he can't really, you know, if he does one, he can't favor one over the other. And then he's ah. and he's never, you know, he's never available. That's he's and he's directing two movies back to back by that also. Um, but in case of cast, you know, I just find people you you know more better than I, but I just find people getting more and more open to it. They're less afraid of being on the spot and more open to that back and forth. So I would certainly encourage our cast to get involved more this season. Last year was kind of the Mickey Fisher show with a little bit of me on the sideline, but um, you know, Mickey's good humor and uh, nice smile will be a very inviting. Um, I think it can be very inviting. <laughs> Hopefully, invite people over to his house and uh, and con them in to come on the uh, the, the podcast. That's the way to do it. It's the it's the trick, it's the it's the dece- uh, deception model of it, where I just invite them over and like, hey, I just want to t- hang out and talk, and maybe we'll make dinner or something, and then I just hit him with an iPad, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> threaten to give him a sp- threaten to give him a scene where they where, where they're going to snap their phone and they'll do right. It. There you <laughs> go. <laughs> Well, um, one last request from Twitter. I'm going to ask this question. This is from Water Cooler Combos. They say, I need the extant team to say, Molly, you in danger, girl, just once. <laughs> Pretty please. That was my favorite moment of the season when that, when that started. I, was, I flipped out. I was live tweeting from CBS when that showed up for the first time. I'm going to leave that to, you know, Mickey's a trained actor. Um, and, <laughs> oh, man. Now I'm going to leave it to him to pull that one off. <sighs> Okay, I feel like I gotta just gotta prep for it. Yeah. All right, you ready? Yeah. Molly, you in danger, girl? <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Love was, it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I was trying to like, like you can't really encapsulate like the soul of Whoopi Goldberg. There's no way to really do it. <laughs> you can't. She's one of a kind. That was terrible. I love how that's just like the trending hashtag for the show, though. I mean, we all remember that scene from ghost and now we use that with molly the character from extant so that's awesome thank you for doing that (laughs) no problem yeah a little live on forever (laughs) well thank you mickey thank you greg for being on the show this was amazing we got a lot of folks on twitter that were excited to have you on that's listening live uh thank you guys for tuning in and we really are excited that, again, Extant has another season to give us a lot of excitement to look forward to and a lot of mystery, and, and hopefully we'll see what's going on with Ethan. Someone also asks, is Ethan going to get a new body? And 
I know you probably can't answer that question, but uh, I'm wondering what? about that. <laughs> I don't think... like me. It's going to be Macaulay Culkin. It'll right, be exactly. Home Alone. <laughs> yes. Home Alone 5 in the future. I like it. Awesome. Well, thank you for being on. And next week, guys, we will have comic book creators, Afua Richardson. She's the illustrator of the comic book uh, called Genius, as well as Jeremy Whitley, who is the writer and creator of Princeless. So please tune in live Sunday, 7 p.m. Eastern time next week on twib.fm forward slash live. Thank you guys for listening in. Have a good night. Thanks, Chief. Thanks. Later. Finally, I'm finally free. Finally.